0: You know, when I was your age, go ask your mother. I know you don't like it. It builds character. How many times do I have to tell you? I'm not just talking to hear my own voice. Hello, listener, and welcome to Dadages.
1: I'm your host, Chad Hagel. And if you are looking for some fatherly wisdom for your career, your family, or any other aspect of your life, then you've come to the right place. If you want to learn more about datages, find additional content, submit questions or feedback to me, or if you want to know if that mental picture you have of me after hearing my voice matches my real face, visit datages.com. Thanks for being here. And before you listen to our podcast, please listen to your father. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 2B. Or not to be—that is the question. Sorry, I I couldn't resist. I only got this one opportunity for that joke; it just had to happen. Well, what I can tell you that this is to be our very first interview on the Dadages podcast. Thanks for coming back, and I hope you enjoy. So, our very first guest on Dadages is a fellow dad. Our boys play on the same high school football team, Lovejoy, here in Dallas, Texas. He's a fellow Stanford alum. His wife is a former dorm mate in my freshman dorm, if you can believe that, and my college roommate introduced the two of them to one another. True story. And here is why he is my guest here today. The topic today is surrounding yourself with people who are better than you are. Well, this guy is a real pro. He's not only dad voice guy here at Datages, but he's also the voice of Stanford Stadium on game days. He's a professional speaker and a professional voice actor. He's done some really cool things with his voice before becoming dad voice guy, but I'll let him share some of those things and those exploits with you. I figured if I'm going to do a podcast and do it right, I needed an expert and a professional, and someone who is a lot more talented at this sort of thing than I am. Oh, and did I mention he is a three-time Jeopardy champion? For real. Listener, I'm pleased to introduce you to our very first Dadages guest, Mr. Steve Frost. Wait, wait, wait. I'm I'm sorry, Alex. Who is
0: Steve Frost? Oh, I've been trying to figure that one out for years, Chad. I who 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 are we all really? Let's get deep in existential.
1: Yeah, we'll set the existential aside yeah, for the okay, moment. We'll, that's probably a good idea. We'll focus on the lighter fare. Okay. So Steve, obviously you've had a storied career as a voice actor, uh, and and that's what brings us here today and qualifies you as uh uh, a professional guest here on Datages. Why don't you share a little bit about your exploits in that field and what you've done in the voiceover at
0: Rome? Well, you know, I've done some things. The primary one being the sports announcer with Stanford for 20-something years. And I got into that early on when I was in college. Uh, they had an open casting call for the to be the new PA announcer for Maples Pavilion, the Stanford Men's Basketball. I was still an undergrad. And But I'd mess around with it in high school. My high school girlfriend played point guard for the girls' team, so I'd do the intro for the girls' team. And so I you know, tried out. I got second. I, I really don't think they wanted an undergrad doing it. But I, I tell you what, one of the Stanford stories is that I was actually the PA guy when the bear mascot from Cal and the tree got into a straight-up fist fight. And here I am, a 20-year-old undergrad. I had no idea what I was doing. But there was a while... Even beyond just the sports announcing, I tried to get into voiceovers. I tried to get into true voice acting. I did some cool stuff. Um, I was the voice of Jester in a video game based on Top Gun. And for the longest time, I was the voice of the BMW dealership in Anchorage, Alaska. But that was one of the things that was hard. Honestly, Chad, it's like when you get into that area, surrounding myself with really good people was hard. And trying to find them was hard and everybody, you know, it was kind of a precursor to COVID days when everybody was working remotely in the voiceover world before it became a thing. So finding really good people outside of that realm of athletics where I was already connected, it was hard. And, and that made making a career in voice acting hard. It kind of went back to doing my thing in tech.
1: I can imagine. So let's go back to the Stanford experience, first of all. So second, who who came in first? Who was the number one? Do you remember that guy?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. No, actually, I'm, I'm trying to remember his name. He's a really nice guy. He actually did some things for the San Jose Sharks. So uh, I would I would fill in when he was doing a Sharks event, and that was about three or four games a year. And and that was how I that was how I got my my start doing that. So
1: and Steve, how did the transition go from second place in Maples to first place at Stanford Stadium? Walk me through that progression.
0: Well, I uh, actually became the women's basketball team heard me do the substitute games and said, "Okay, we'd like to have him do it." And then I did the women's games for a couple years. And then the guy who beat me tryout left and he didn't want to do it anymore. So I did the men's games. And then I played football for Stanford. And our associate AD had heard me doing the basketball games. And he's kind of well, why would we have this guy who's one of our alums? not doing our football games and so they hired me to do the football games in 1999 we had rose bowl year a lot of fun and
1: so you you led stanford to the rose bowl is what you're saying no no i was just someone who was talking about how good troy walters was excellent excellent so, obviously, it's a very niche realm. Tell me about the people that you've seen and that you look up to in the area of game calling, sports broadcasting, that
0: whole, that whole field. Well, you know, the, the, the person that really helped me along uh, the way getting started was very early on a guy named Don Essig, who has been the voice of uh, Austin Stadium in Oregon forever. He made his way to me and introduced himself and started to give me some real pointers on what to say, what to do. And it wasn't solicited, right? I didn't say, hey, Don, can I get career advice from you? You know, you can tell somebody who's a really good person because they didn't wait for me to figure it out. You know, he came to me and said, here's what you need to know. In fact, he handed me his little book that he'd written on becoming an effective PA announcer for football and basketball. And so he gave that to me. And I still use most of those principles. And he's still, at least of a couple of years ago, the voice of Autzen Stadium. So sometimes good people just kind of appear in your life and you got to be smart enough to listen to them when they do. And he literally handed you the playbook. He literally handed me the playbook. And I have passed that on to other people that have said they wanted to get into this, you know, getting doing at least in stadium or in venue announcing. So it was really great of a good man and a good person like Don Essig to give me that advice, recognizing this is a guy who uh, who could use it.
1: I know I've had some people like that in my career as well. And my belief is that in our modern Western culture, one of the things that's truly hardest to find is a mentor. People believe you grow up in a family system. You have a dad. Your dad should be your role model. We'll talk about your dad and your family in a minute because you come from a very storied family uh, in the sporting realm. But I find that that really falls short that just saying, I had a great father and he gave me a great upbringing and here I am as an adult, it doesn't end there. Having people in your life that can really help lead you in the right direction is is really important. Do you have other mentors that have helped you along the way?
0: Oh, here and there, there is a guy named Dennis Packer, who was a longtime announcer at USC, who helped me out some. But, you know, by and large, the people who helped me in this were were ones who were just good at other things. We're good. We're good at sports. We're good at just communication. You know, one of the things that's really hard, you talk about it, Chad, to find is honest feedback, like actual honest feedback. Uh, I know you're going to do a podcast on advice at some point. So how do you find that good advice? How can you find that person that you can trust to say, okay, should I do this differently? Should I not? And they'll tell you honestly without agenda. And that's really hard. So, uh, you know, some of, some of my friends at Stanford, I say, hey, I tried this differently. Should I do it differently? And so, you know, aside from having those good mentors, there's also just somebody to give you good, honest feedback that doesn't have agenda. And when you can find those people, they're extremely valuable.
1: Well, I I think I've found one here. So I'll ask you, what advice do you have for me as I embark on datages?
0: Well, I think first of all, start with something you care about and you obviously do. It's really hard to do something and stick with something that you're new at and it's difficult and, and there's a lot of people doing it. If it's not something you really care about and you're not passionate about, it's hard to make it. Now, ironically, that is diametrically opposed to the advice I'd give someone in their career, which is, you know, you don't have to find something you're passionate about at the start. You find something that matters. And that was a great piece of advice I got early on in my career that I heard when I, I one of my second job after, first and second job were with people from Netscape. And Mark Andreessen used to say that. In fact, he's got a very famous commencement speech I think, at Illinois, where he talks about don't do something you're passionate about. Save that for when you're in your 50s. You find something that matters, and you do something that matters, and so for career advice, yeah, that's something I I have always adhered to. But from a personal standpoint, if you're going to take on something like this, you got to care about it. You got to want to do it because you're making your own way, and you're trying to figure things out on your own. So, and and if you don't do that, you know, the second piece of advice I always tell people is be yourself, be genuine. Uh, I think people can sniff out the. The non genuine very, very quickly, whether it's in a podcast or in real life. And if you can't, it's a skill to work on. But yeah, be genuine, be natural, and be curious. And if you can be those three things about something you care about, I think you'll do really well.
1: That's fantastic advice. I'm definitely going to take that to heart. And, uh, you know, some of what you're saying about finding something you're passionate about. For me, I know that has, is really what has, has led me to take on this new challenge. I think it's a good barometer. You know, if I ever find myself doing this and not being passionate about it, it's probably time to hang it up uh, and put the headphones away.
0: Well, hey, uh, that, that may be true. But then again, if you're making a boat ton of money off of it, uh, at some point it comes to me, <laughs> something you're passionate about to just what pays the bills. And, and uh, that's a reality that dads sometimes got to deal with. It's like, oh, it's not fun anymore. Really? Okay. Well, I still got a bunch of mouths to feed and I still got to pay mortgages. So uh, there you go. There you go, Pop.
1: You have to balance your inner compass with your own wallet, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And all the people who
0: want things out of that wallet.
1: Well, let's uh, go back to the topic of of family. You and I are both dads. We both come from families that have established themselves uh, in different domains at a very high level. And in my family, I know that in the realm of business and real estate, and now in philanthropy, in my father's later years, there's a legacy that's been established there. And it's one that is, uh, I won't say hard to live up to, it's impossible. To live up to, uh, when you look at dynamics in our culture and our society, there is achievement that has happened at different times. In in my opinion, in our culture, in our society, as as things have evolved, and there are other time periods that don't offer those same opportunities. So you have to learn to, in my mind, measure your own success and and find your own space within a family dynamic. Now, turning to, to your family, I know that your family has a phenomenal legacy around football, That, especially in the state of Nebraska. Anyone that thinks of football thinks of the Frost family. Maybe you can talk a little bit about your family's legacy, your father, even your mother, who is a, a football coach in her own right and a very accomplished athlete. And then obviously the, the rest of your legacy of you and your brother playing football and then Scott going on to coach at the at the highest levels.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think that uh, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, the family legacy in Nebraska is a little different than it was maybe three months ago. But, you know, I, I think it's, it, I come from an athletic family where I'm easily the fourth best athlete in, in my f- group of four, right? But since this is about, and I'd love to talk about my brother, my mom is a unique story. She's, uh you know, was an Olympic athlete in 1968 and a, uh, uh, one of the first ever female football coaches. But, you know, I'll talk about my dad for a minute. And it's really close to my heart, Chad, because my dad passed away about a year and a half ago. I guess it was, gosh, two years ago now. And, um, you know, he had a really nasty combination of Alzheimer's and cancer. And so it was really hard, you know, as much as I missed him after he passed away, I hadn't really talked to him practically in two years. And a lot of us go through that. But from an athletic standpoint, there were a few things I thought my dad did, did amazingly well. Um, the first one was, of course, he showed up and he was there. And that doesn't mean that he had to be at every single game, every single practice, although because he was my high school football coach, it turns out he was for the most part, at least with football, but being involved, being somebody who was in touch with what was going on and didn't separate himself from it. You know, at times that would be, it would be annoying that he was that much in my business. And, you know, even practice and football, I couldn't get away from it. But if he gave me a choice between somebody who was really, really involved and somebody who didn't really care, I'm going to take the person who's really involved every day. And I'm going to, with my kids, I try to push that balance as much as I could. But he also pushed a lot of envelopes, you know, innovation wise. You know, he was someone who was always looking, at least with sports, to do it better. And so, you know, Scott, my brother was one of the first people to ever have like a full on highlight tape that he did with VHS, you know, back in 1992, like splicing VHS tape with high school level equipment, not easy. He was one who was always looking to market me and get me in front of coaches and do camps. And so, you know, just taking the status quo wasn't good enough. And it would have been easy to take that, you know, that route and say, hey, let the world around me determine how this is going to turn out. And and my dad didn't do that. He didn't wait for everybody to find me or uh, or or discover us. Like he was like, okay, here it is. And and sometimes you 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 know you push things, and sometimes that doesn't sit very well with people. My dad wasn't always the most popular person at the towns or schools where we would, but he didn't sit around and just kind of wait for things to happen. And and that pushed us to be as good as we could be. But it also allowed us to have a lot of the opportunities that we had that I think if he hadn't done that would have just kind of gone by the wayside. And being in a small town in the middle of of Nebraska, if you don't do that sort of thing, it is really hard to get noticed.
1: I can understand that for sure. And, uh, you know, coming from that small town in Nebraska and then making the transition to life at Stanford, it must have been for you, as it was for me, a very eye-opening experience and a a transition to an environment where the people around you were just dazzling in a way that you had never really experienced before. Tell me about your Stanford arrival story when you showed up on campus. Tell me your impressions, your experiences, how that transition occurred for you.
0: Well, I had a little bit unique in that I was a transfer student, one of the few. I kind of made Long story short, I ended up Colorado State out of high school, which I thought I was going to the Air Force Academy. Um, I had my appointment to the Air Force Academy and at the last minute I kind of was like, ah, boy, you know, I kind of got cold feet on the military and the commitment and didn't really know why I was going to the Air Force Academy. so uh, ended up at Colorado State. and I came in in a spring quarter at Stanford and Chad, I got destroyed. I mean, destroyed. Football-wise, I got I got uh, beat up every day by a guy named Jason Fisk, who played ten years in the NFL. I had no idea how to keep up with the homework. I was staying up till two o'clock in the morning, but still, you know, uh, still not being able to complete my assignments because I didn't know how to study yet. My coach, I would fall asleep in football meetings because as soon as they turned out the light, again, I'd been up till two o'clock in the morning trying to stay up. So my first quarter, that spring quarter, and then following into that next fall. It was rough. And I had really, when you talk about surrounding yourself with people better than you, from a football perspective, from an academic perspective, I thought I was, uh, I was, I, I, didn't know if I was going to be. And if I didn't have the kind of toughness that had been instilled in me my, by my own father and my own family, I don't know that I would have, very candidly. But, you know, sometimes if you, to, to your point about surrounding yourself with really good people, if you're going to be a good skier, you're not going to find them on the green slopes, you're going to find them on the double diamonds. And that means at times, if you're going to really surround yourself with good people and people who are better than you, you're going to have to take on challenges that you are not ready for. And you're going to have to engage in activities at a level that is that pushes you beyond what you've ever done and maybe even what you're capable of doing. And that will help you. Obviously you're going to achieve and you're going to push yourself. But I think that level of discomfort and that worry—that oh my god, everyone around me is better than me. How am I going to keep up with this? It drives a lot of people from taking on challenges that could be really, really beneficial to them. And obviously, it set my life on an entirely different path because I didn't give—I uh, didn't give up. And eventually, I found my niche and I found a place. It was just long snapping, but I was a part of the team. So yeah, that 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 Stanford experience. When you talk about being around people who are better than you. I had it uh, really, really thick uh, in almost every aspect, and and that it it was uh, formative to say the least.
1: And and I don't know if this was true for you as well, but I found in that experience that when I first arrived, I was used to having a sense of self sufficiency, independence, being able to do everything on my own, and I'd always been good enough to do everything I needed to do on my own, and. I saw others potentially as competitors, you know, and you're thrown into situations where people definitively are competitors. You're lining up across the line from a guy who's in your face and is going to pound you. I'm lining up, meanwhile, as a pre-med student at Stanford across the line from a barrage of students who uh, are, are at an academic level that I would never achieve, no matter how many hours and days and months and years I spent studying in my life. And I don't know if you ever found this moment, but I I sort of had this epiphany when I was at Stanford to stop seeing others as the competition and start searching for those people that were better than me, that I could find a way to engage with them, a way to meet them where they were, meet them halfway and have them help elevate me. And I was never used to reaching up for anyone. I spent Mm -hmm. my entire life reaching out or reaching down to help others. And it was tough for me to embrace the idea of reaching up and seeking help and finding people better that could help me succeed where I was going to fail on my own. Did you have that same kind of experience and you ever kind of make that transition mentally into where you're comfortable with that?
0: Yeah, you know, Chad, first of all, let me just say that I think what you said there was really profound. And I hope people heard that because when you're someone who has a mindset of helping others, it's, it's really weird. Because people who have a mindset of helping others often don't have a mindset of asking for help. And, and so asking other people for help is really hard, especially people that you look up to. And I, I, I admire you for doing that because I can think of, you know, now uh, I had a, a very, one of the people I consider to be a father figure in my life who told me, like, people actually want to help. Good people do. And, you know, he told me at one point, he's like, if someone came to you and asked you for help on the same thing you're asking me for help on, it was a little bit of a rough time in my career, would you help them? And I said, yeah, of course. And why do you think somebody else wouldn't want to help you? But for somebody who who doesn't like to ask for help and as, as dads were you know, taught to be self-sufficient, you know, we've got kind of that ethic. And, and so, yeah, there were people that helped me. I can name a few of them that, that did at Stanford and beyond, even in the early parts of my career. Um, I was finding that really smart person who I consider to be like, in fact, one of the pieces of advice that I always tell like early employees or new dads or somebody who's new at something is like, you find a person that will allow you to ask that stupid question and give you an answer without looking at you like you're an idiot. All right. So when I started at Google, uh, I really had no idea what I was doing with strategic partnerships. I'd done sales, but now I'm negotiating, you know, 20, 30, hundred million dollar contracts. And I don't know what these things mean. So I found like one of one of the experienced biz dev guys and I found somebody who was one of the lawyers who I could ask that question. Right. And and they would explain it to me uh, and they wanted to help. But again, hard to go by that. You got to have some measure of humility to say, "Hey, I I don't really understand this. You know, can you help me? And then, you know, I'll I'll leave you with this because I I think it's one of the best pieces of advice I ever got. People tell you there's no such thing as a bad question. Uh, No, there isn't, I guess, but there is a lazy question. And if you haven't done like your basic research or you're just coming to somebody to lean on them time and time again, then that help dress up real fast. Like you got to, you got to do your own legwork before you go reaching your hand.
1: Yeah. I'm certainly with you there. I, uh, you know, people always say there's no such thing as a stupid question, but I've heard lots of stupid questions.
0: Yeah, there are. And they're definitely lazy questions. No question
1: for sure. I like yeah. that distinction of lazy. Now, I happen to know very well of one big piece of advice, assistance, help you got along the way while you were at Stanford, and uh, that came from my roommate, Mr. Damon Dunn, who introduced you to your wife, Andrea. Do you want to share that story? Because I, I love that story, and I'd like you to share it with our listeners.
0: Well, if, as long as they don't judge me harshly, which, you know, they, they probably can. I met, uh, I'm, I'm married to Andrea. We've been married, we'll be 25 years this spring.
1: Wow, congratulations. I did not I didn't keep track of that. I mean, I guess we are coming up for our twenty fifth reunion next year. Yeah,
0: so. yeah, and we got married like we were like old school in nineteen fifties. Like we got married a week after Andrea graduated. It was, it, you know, that wasn't as sketchy as how we met. Like we were at a fraternity party, and she actually came up to me on a bet slash dare from her roommate because the roommate was talking about I couldn't talk to anybody, and um, I had like basically passed out that day in, in a game. So I wasn't having a beer. I was having an orange soda in my hand, which made me like literally the least threatening person in the room. So on a dare, Andrea actually came up and, and talked to me, looking rather harmless. And we ended up talking. And to my to my credit, I was a senior and she was a freshman. And when I found out that it was like her third day on campus, I was like, hey, you know what? Nice to meet you. Thank you. But I really liked her. And she was lived next door to you know Damon and you and Damon wouldn't take no and for an answer and set us up and after I messed up a first couple dates but was still kind of nice to her um, we just started dating and we dated all the way through her college and got married so yeah that wasn't hard to figure out that I was marrying better than me too which it may be the most important place where you can surround yourself with better people than than you are right
1: agreed agreed you and I are both uh, very fortunate in that way so let's uh let's transition then. You've mentioned a moment ago your experience with Google. You referred to your experience at Netscape. Let's talk about those early professional years. It's it was obviously an exciting time. I know, you know, my experience in the dot com space, the company that I worked for was not Google and not Netscape. I enjoyed the experience. I often say that I got to go to business school and somebody else paid for it, but you were part of, you know, some of the big name, you know, existential companies that defined dot com 1.0 and defined the internet. Tell us about those experiences and and what that was like and the people that you were you were surrounded by in that
0: environment. well, I'll give you I'll give you a contrast, uh, compare and contrast, right? because although I work for some really good companies, I worked for some that were not, too. Like, I worked, for, I worked for one company that was basically just straight up a fraud. Wow. And we didn't know it at the time. You know, I've had both good and bad. And, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the two when you're not in it. But let me give you a, you know, a compare and contrast. So right before I worked for Google, I worked for a company called LoudCloud. And LoudCloud was basically, it was AWS 1.0. We were going to build the infrastructure to power the dot com boom, and it was you know growth on demand, just like AWS is now. Except our cost structure was so crazy. You know, it's like a terabyte of storage was six figures. Now you can buy it at you know Staples for you know ten bucks. It was the dot com days. If you weren't
1: spending it too much, you weren't spending enough.
0: Yeah. So here's the difference. Even though they had a lot of the same leadership between Loudcloud and Google. So at both places, I was surrounded by smart people smartest and in you know again a lot of the same folks in in the engineering stuff but smart people in both cases Chad the difference was at loudcloud everybody was smart but everybody assumed they were smarter than you and so they were the ones who were telling me you know wouldn't just worry about their own stuff they would tell me what's wrong with sales they would tell me what was wrong with this and yes they're smart but boy they were really happy to to tell you what's you know what you're doing wrong and try to fix your problem as opposed to just theirs, whereas at Google, and I think this was a big factor in their early success, they not only knew that they were smart, but they just assumed you were smart too, and they assumed that you know you were capable of figuring out your job, and I'm going to be capable of figuring out my job, and so you know I, w- the lesson that I learned from that, if you look at kind of the, the okay yes both people are smart. And, or both companies were smart, and both companies had massively talented engineers and business people and everything else. But good people are secure, and and that's been one of the biggest things when I when I find somebody that that is really kind of insecure about themselves, or has to prove it or has to get into somebody else's business to somehow justify their own brilliance or worth or whatever that may be that is a situation that you got to walk away because that's one of those like that's one of those good person bad person things a person who truly is good at what they do is not afraid to be challenged they're not afraid to trust they're not afraid to put faith in people, and they're not afraid to hire people, like you said, that are better than them or c- capable or skilled, because they've got enough self-confidence and security that they can that they're not going to worry about being overshadowed or exposed. And so that's one of those big things I took away is, is you know, and, and I stayed a couple of those bad companies. I stayed with them too long because you know you you just well you know are they really there? Here's here's a piece of dad and career advice I'd give somebody. If you get into a place and you can't find that good people or the leaders are insecure or they don't know what they're doing, life is too short and nobody ever figures it out later.
1: So it sounds like that really the combination of confidence and competence is the key that leads to people being able to coexist in a way that all boats rise with the tide. Is that, is that a good summation?
0: Yes, confidence, competence with a genuine dose of humility. Hard
1: to find, hard to find combination
0: for sure. It is, but boy, when you do it, you you got to recognize it.
1: So let's uh, let's talk about how you've taken these principles that you learned early in your career. And I think you and I were both blessed to be able to learn those lessons so early at such a young age and then be able to apply them to an entire Arc of a career since then. Not that we're done with our careers at this point, hopefully, but uh, that we've we've had a number of years that we've been able to benefit from those early lessons. How are you applying that today? And tell us about what you're doing now and and how those lessons have served you and how you're serving others.
0: Well, I tell you what, I have I have this weird job that I can't ever explain to anybody. I'm kind of it's kind of like Chandler on Friends, like. Nobody, no, nobody really understands what I do. I work for a company called TSIA, which stands for Technology and Services Industry Association, and we're a for-profit research firm. Hundreds of the biggest names in technology uh, come to us for advice on how to make more money, generally in their services and as a service businesses. So we benchmark that, and I do, I do all sorts of fun stuff now. I'm. I'm doing research. I'm doing studies. I'm talking to uh, different companies, trying to figure out best practices and document them. And I'm writing papers and and doing presentations all over. I'm more virtual now than I'd like, but it is what it is. So, you know, it, it's the the early lessons. You know, one. that that will get me here, first of all, is never be afraid to try new things. If you're waiting until you know, uh, one of the great pieces of advice that I got from a career perspective is that if you're waiting until you're ready, you've waited too long. Hmm. So, you know, you've got to wait, you've got to jump in when you can't see the bottom sometimes. And even with this company I'm with now, like research, I had no idea what a researcher even did, but it sounded cool. And I liked a lot of the, pe- and the people that I met. You talk about surrounding yourself with good people. I'm like, oh, wait, you know, after a while, what do the kids say these days? You know, real, recognize real. Well, OK, I saw a lot of the in the people that I met with the company that I'm at right now at TSIA. I saw a lot of the aspects of the people that I had recognized as good people along the way. and And I think that's the last thing that I would want to emphasize to anybody who's listening to this is. It's hard sometimes to recognize the good and genuinely good people from those who are just putting on a show. It isn't easy. And so a couple pieces that have really helped me are one, like when you know somebody for sure is good you pay attention and you study it and you say, okay, that's what a good person does in this situation. That's what a good person looks like. That's somebody who's smart or I want to be around, you know, again, having security and in, in your own abilities is one of those. Um, but when, then when you see it, you got to latch to it because those opportunities to your point are, are few and farther between than you'd really like. And so I saw this company with people that, again, did I really know what I was doing? No but I saw people who had the aspects of really good people that I had been around in other places. And it's like, okay, it sounds cool. And I like the people, so I'm gonna give them a try.
1: So it's sounding to me, Steve, that what you're saying is one of the greatest competencies that you've developed over your lifetime is really a good people radar. Your ability to identify successfully and separate those good people from, as you said, the ones that are not real in that regard. Would you say that's one of your skill sets and competencies that you've developed at this point in your career?
0: It is, but I would encourage everyone that I think that that skill is made not innate. It doesn't mean I haven't misjudged, but fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well,
1: unless you're unless you're George W. Bush, then it's something completely different from that.
0: I, yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm not. We're gonna go, not going to go on there in metaphors. You're, you're already, you know, you already got dadages. You don't need to. You don't need to crack that 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 nut open. But yeah, I mean, you've got to pay attention. And if you're not paying attention, then as a dad and as a business person, as just a you know a man in life, like what are you doing if you're not paying attention?
1: Yeah, and I think it really comes down to what I've heard referred to as mistaking your way to growth. You have to make those mistakes to learn the lessons that come along with them. There's no shortcut.
0: There isn't, but just don't make the same mistake over and over again. Yeah, if you, mistakes are great as long as you learn from them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, in and perhaps my experience
1: has been, you know, when you talk about how challenging it is to identify the good people in life and to surround yourself with those people. It's one thing to talk about it in a professional context. I think that at our age, uh, it may be even harder when you look at it in a social context and how to surround yourself with a good community of people. This is one of the things that I can credit you with in my life is where I am today and the community of people that I'm surrounded by. I still remember very clearly during COVID, our families locked down in L.A., Uh, my boys lost a year of their lives academically and athletically. And I decided to lift my head up and look over the wall, so to speak, and say, what's out there? What's outside California? Where can we go? What can we do? And I remember having a phone conversation with you, and it's so crystal clear in my mind. You said, Chad, I think we've got something here that you need to check out. And that was your invitation and your introduction to me of the academic community and the social community here in Fairview, Lucas, Texas, and the, in the Lovejoy school system. Uh, and sure enough, my wife and I have found our way here and now find ourselves surrounded by people that we care about, people who care about us. From the moment we arrived, everyone in the community, you and Andrea included, were, were open in arms and welcoming us, and everyone is standing by ready to help everyone else at a moment's notice, no matter what they may need. And they truly just want you to be happy and they want you to be successful and they want you and your family to be healthy. And it's, it's just an amazing sense of community and greater than any that I've found anywhere I've lived in my life. And I find myself very blessed to be in these surroundings. And, and like I said, to me, I, I credit you in a great way for opening that door to me and helping walk me through that door uh, to where we are today. So thank you for that. And uh, I'm eager to hear, you know, your perspective about this topic as well. And and this idea of surrounding yourself as an adult, as a parent in a community setting with people that are good and and people that you want to spend your time with.
0: Well, first of all, thank you. That's really nice of you to say. I will tell you this. It's one of those places where I struggle. I wish I had better advice. You know, one of the things that I think you want to know if a, if a person is genuine or not a real genuine person, a good person doesn't always have all the answers. And, you know, it's something I struggle with and, you know, uh, I've gotten involved with church and, and parent things and, and stuff and, you know, but I don't always have all the answers. Uh, and, and, it's something that, you know, I, have really tried to find good people. And when you do find good people, you, you, you latch on to them. When you do find communities that are welcoming, you, you got to walk through open doors. And that's one thing I've learned, but, You know, you're, and you are a lot better at this than I am, always have been. But I think that, that while it's not easy for me, good people understand that they're not good at everything and you can't be as a dad, you certainly can't be good at everything. I don't think there's any way as a, as a man, I don't think you can be good at everything. So, um, you know, finding those places where you can have people that'll fill in the holes and fill in the gaps for you is great. But to pay it back then is you're gonna to have to fill in a gap for somebody else.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, trust me, Steve, when you, you talk about that, we all have those challenges and those insecurities. In fact, when I was looking at the notion of uh, starting this podcast and and datages and putting myself in a position of giving advice, you know, I, I thought to myself along the way, you know, gosh, am I really in a position in my life right now with the challenges that I have, with the questions I have unanswered with, you know, relationships with family, with my own children. Am I really in a position to be giving advice? And I spoke with a very good friend of mine who will be a guest on this podcast at some point soon, another great father, uh, Jeffrey Small. And what he said to me at the time is, that's what makes you qualified, is the fact that you're still going through it. It's legitimate. It's something that you're continuing to evolve as a person, continue to evolve as a friend, as a father in all of these roles in your life, you're still doing the good work and still working to get better. And that's what makes you the right person to do this. And so I think that that's something that I took very much to heart. And as I listened to you speaking, the other thing that really came to me is jumping back in this conversation to those formative years that we were in college and at Stanford and how important it has been to me to maintain those relationships because those are irreplaceable. Those are people that no matter how hard we try and where we go in our lives as adults, we're probably never going to be put in an environment like that again to be able to pull those relationships out of the fold and and have them be lasting and be an important part of our lives. So I know I try to nurture those and I try to stay close to you and others and I find it wonderful that here in the town of Fairview... In Oakwood Estates, we have our little Stanford Enclave with your family and the Burrises and us. It's uh really remarkable to see after all these years and thousands of miles that we can have this uh this little community here where we all stick together.
0: Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it starts with other people. And then when you know somebody and and somebody you trust and you see that that they're doing something, it's okay to mimic it, by the way. <laughs> you know, if you got if you got somebody who's doing something well, um, I, I really, I don't have a lot of pride of authorship on, on my life and the stuff that's worked for me. And, and, you know, good people don't hoard success and they're willing to share what they have. And I, I, I would struggle with, with, with being secretive or not being, uh, not being someone who's, when you find something good, letting other people know. So uh, it's certainly glad to have you here. And it turns out, by the way, your kid's a pretty good quarterback. So <laughs> probably a good thing he's here.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. There's, uh, as you know, there's nothing a father loves more than compliments about his children. So,
0: yeah, I'll let you know when I get one.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell you after the uh, rain game we had last week and seeing how well the special teams performed, I didn't see a single problem with a snap, a hold or a kick. And, no, uh, it was
0: good. It Will was is good. an
1: integral part of that. So it was, it was great to see. And I think we've got another rain game coming this week. It looks like hope not. Well, Steve, this has been a phenomenal uh, first interview for me. I I really appreciate you helping me navigate through the process of getting Datages off the ground. I really appreciate you agreeing to be the guinea pig and being the first guest on the program. And I certainly appreciate everything that you've shared here today. It's uh, been very informative and enlightening for me, and I'm sure that our listeners will find it to be the same. So you know, thank you sincerely for your time. And if there's any additional advice or perspective you'd like to share with those listeners here before we part, that would be fantastic.
0: You know, I, just what we said, Chad, when you find good people, you gotta go. Even if you're not ready, even if you don't think you are live up to their standard, even if you think that they're better than you at stuff, you get the opportunity to hang around with them. Don't hesitate. Don't think you can't do it. It's gonna be hard. But if you can stick with it, it's worth it because that's the kind of thing that changes lives. Hanging around with people who are not better than you doesn't really change your life very much. But when you see how things are are better and you're not afraid to to jump into that pool, even if you don't know where the bottom is, it's going to serve you well.
1: Very good advice from dad voice guy himself. (laughs) And uh, before we break, Steve, uh, as you may know, uh, we end every episode of Dadages with a, bad dad joke do you, do you have one to share with
0: us it's a ringer well I, uh, yeah you know i did you know that uh that a piece of peach pie is a dollar 25 in barbados oh really yeah did you know that uh, a piece of cherry pie is a dollar 38 in jamaica wow and uh, a piece of chocolate pie is two dollars and ten cents in belize these are the pie rates of the caribbean
1: oh my yeah, you asked
0: for it, brother. You got it. Oh, there you have it. Well, thank you, yeah. Steve. Yeah, hey, all the best to you, and uh, th- this is going to be fun. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. Likewise, take care. See ya. Thank you for listening to Datages. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to visit datages and subscribe to the Datages podcast to get notified for future episodes. You can rate a review on Spotify and Apple Podcast why? Because I'm your father and I said so. Just a little respect is all I ask for. I put a roof over your head and food on the table and what do you do? No, tell me exactly what do you do because I'm doing everything. I'm paying for everything. No, get back here. Get back here right now.